Welcome back to the Present History Podcast. This is part two of our conversation about oral history. So if you haven't already, make sure to check out part one so you know what's going on. And we hope you enjoy this episode of the Present History Podcast. What you mentioned there as well a little earlier about um, these kind of methodological questions that oral historians need to engage with either before they do an interview, <laughs> even during an interview, and then especially after an interview, you need to grapple with these questions. And so my question is, as you approach, as an oral historian, as you approach an interview, what kind of questions are you asking yourself? How, what's your process for preparing for an interview? What does that look like? Yeah, good question. They, to some extent, they they can be quite different. Right. Um, it depends on the on the individual you're interviewing. Some people, I mean, my the the bulk of the interviews I've done, I've been with um, HIV AIDS activists, um, taken quite broadly, but they have tended to be people who, in some way, are quite um, either prominent in that particular field or they're public figures in some guise. That was kind of my way to access them. So to some extent, I already know something about them based on their public record. Um, and I've written about this in the Oral History Journal about you know the what some of the kind of to and fro you can do before the interview and actually then during it, based on what you've done in terms of archival research and kind of pre-interview research, how much is appropriate to bring to bear on the interview. Maybe that's worth talking about um but really i guess it depends on your project so for, for me there has always to date been um you know there has been something there's been a kind of quote unquote point to the interview so you know at some point it will be you know tell tell me something about about hiv but what i've tried to do especially because hiv can be you know it's obviously a very sensitive emotion laid topic you don't want to launch in with with that. So uh, tr that's never the kind of first question. I would always, and again, this goes back to our earlier point about kind of what makes an oral history interview different to maybe like a sociological interview or a more targeted interview. You want to get a sense of that person's life experience, what they're kind of bringing to bear on the interview as well. So you want to try and get a bit of a sense of what their early life was like on what their kind of formative experiences were. And some people are more willing to discuss that than others, which I think is just part and parcel of, you know, who, who feels comfortable about sharing what. You know, the interviewee has a lot of power in this situation, which often we don't give credit to in how we write about oral histories. You know, we think about researchers coming in with all the power, but the interviewee will decide how much they tell you. And that reciprocal process, you know, you've got a lot to do to earn the trust of that interviewee. So that's, I mean, that's part of the answer to your question as well about, you know, what do you do before the interview? You've got to you know you could you could just turn up yeah and um plonk your recorder down and say right let's go but um and of course people are you know that that does happen and yeah. some people will find that really useful in terms of interviewees might find that time you know time wise really useful but the the better interviews tend to be the ones where you've spent more time with the interview before or you've done a lot of kind of talking on the phone before and built up some rapport and some kind of trust and um yeah, you want to, I suppose, make sure the interviewee, well, this is definitely what you should be doing, is is making sure the interviewee knows why you're there, what your project's about, what you want to talk to them about, 
Um, and what's crucially what's going to happen next? Is it going to go into the archive? Uh, is it uh, going to be part of a public-facing um, project? All that kind of stuff you want to make sure the interviewee knows about. Um, and I suppose some of the, yeah, some of the kinds of the questions I would want to ask the interviewees tend to differ. There are there are kind of stock questions, you know, about tell me about your childhood. I, I tend to find asking tell me about your childhood to be more interesting than some people might say. What's your earliest memory? Or, um, but I suppose tell me about your childhood and early life. People can take as broadly as they like. Um, so two of my interviews, you know, one person gave a very short answer to that question and then we moved straight on because it was very clear that was maybe he didn't want to talk about that or maybe he wasn't didn't know that was going to be part of the discussion so he didn't feel comfortable talking about it um whereas somebody else was happy to talk for you know 30 40 minutes about that before we even get to the next question so that can be a useful question in terms of thinking about uh, that kind of open-ended question so interviewees have the like unspoken but very clear authority and choice to take whatever direction they want is really important um and then the, you know you would just i suppose go with the interview you both know you're going to talk about in my case hiv and aids at some point um the only other thing that that marries them all together is i tended to end them all by asking people um i mean a quite specific question about whether they considered themselves to have been an activist and what that meant to them um for probably fairly obvious reasons based on my project, but I tended also to ask, and really this was based on um, having listened to lots of interviews in the British Library that Wendy Rickard had conducted. She would always finish her interviews by asking kind of what was this process like for you? How has it been to recall? And those tended to be really f fruitful questions to ask. I mean, especially in terms of what comes next when you turn the tape recorder off, like is your interview okay? Do you need to really sit with them for a while and make sure they are comfortable and, and fine. But because sometimes you won't really be aware, um, depending on how good your interview is at kind of um, holding back some emotion. But sometimes you can you can have felt that the interview went really, really uh, smoothly and nothing unexpected came up. But your interviewer said, might then say at that point, actually, no, it was really, um, I wasn't really expecting this memory about my friend or whatever to have come up and I, I feel quite upset about that and um, it's useful to have those moments to check in with your with your interviewees and as, with yourself as well but um, that that's a useful uh, question to I find that a very useful question to end on usually absolutely and you kind of touched on those those events that they might be recalling that might be more traumatic mm. or might be more emotional and in the case of Amy Tooth Murphy the Bethnal tube disaster how would you go about engaging with those stories that will be more difficult for them to talk about and potentially even more difficult to interview them about? Yeah. Um, how would you approach those instances and what kind of tact are you, are you taking? Yeah, um, well, I mean, that's part of the answer is that you do it tactfully and you do it respectfully. In my case, because the project has always been about HIV, that, you know, that hasn't been surprising to the interviewee so they um come they agree to be interviewed knowing that's what i want to ask them about. i mean the project i'm doing now for example which is maybe even more relevant to this question is about the history of uh medics and psychiatrists who work with survivors of sexual violence 
and um, again, it is the case that the, these are not surprising narratives because I'm interviewing professionals, but this would be very different if you were interviewing... Basically, it's different when when uh, these things are not expected in the interview. So um, Emma Vickers has written re a really important article about this called um, Unexpected... or it's about unexpected trauma, as she calls it. So moments in your interview where, as I just said, the interviewee is not expecting this memory to surface or for a topic of conversation to come up and they find it really um, triggering and, and, and a kind of uh, re-traumatised often by this. So in those moments, which are, are really crucial to be aware of, Vickers gives you a really clear set of things that can be useful to do, which based on her experience as a, as a um, kind of therapist or having done training in, in psychotherapy, and there are things about grounding, so really stopping asking your historical your questions, um, getting your interviewee to focus on what's going on in the room right now. So you might ask them to kind of put both feet on the ground and take a deep breath and to tell you. I mean, there are a number of methods you could do you know, that, that are about kind of saying a certain number of things you can hear or see or smell. And um, what's really crucial in this is to recognise that they're, they're, they're methods that are drawn from... Um, therapeutic practitioners but you're not doing it as a therapist right there you're doing it to make sure the interviewee is kind of back and safe and um feeling uh comfortable but it's you have to recognize you're not there as a therapist you're there as a interviewee even if you're someone like Vickers and there are other oral historians who maybe have some psychotherapeutic training you're not there in that capacity on that day you're there as an oral historian and there are a number of things that maybe you might want to, to think about. And if you're doing a project like mine that is about maybe sensitive and potentially traumatic subjects, you would, I hope, go into that with, you know, um, support services. You can, and I don't, not refer people not in a referral way, but you can maybe point people towards or, or ask. In that particular moment, Emma Vickers suggests it can be useful to say, have you, have you thought about, um, you know, having this conversation with with a therapist or with somebody else for a number of reasons for two main reasons one that it actually might be a useful thing in that circumstance to do if someone has been unexpectedly traumatized but also because it reinforces the fact that you're not a therapist in that situation right that you're you're actually doing something very different and that um talking to a therapist would not be the same as what you've just done so th those are a number of things that can happen in those more extreme circumstances um, but actually having conversations that are about sensitive, upsetting subjects, which tend to be uh, what I work on, um, as you kind of suggested, you have to do it with tact. And really you just do it, it's, I mean, you, know, you, you do it with respect and you make sure that your interviewee knows that you, you're there to listen to them and you um, are engaged and thankful. For, I mean, this, this, is, this is, again, good uh, pra best practice when someone uh, would disclose something to you, you know, you would, you, you you make clear that you're thankful they've told you and you're sorry that's happened. And maybe you wouldn't say that in the in the interview, but to have that conversation afterwards is really important. Um, but yeah, ha, you know, doing oral history interviews on sensitive subjects, you know, if the point of the interview is that subject, um, you're kind of aware of that already. Yeah. Um, so really, it's 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 about having that dialogue I suppose with your with your interviewee um, and, and checking in with yourself during that process just to, to make sure are, are both of us all right here is this going is this going in the direction I was hoping it would is everyone 
broadly happy and comfortable and safe to continue. Yeah. So once you've finished an interview, what does the editing process look like? What sort of ethical questions are popping up in your mind as you as you try to interpret and analyze and, and deal with this interview that you've just conducted? So normally there won't be much editing going on if things have gone broadly as you expect. Yeah. Where that is different is so what you what I tend to find best to do is to um, send a copy of the interview and or transcript to the interviewee for them to check. It could be that you want them to check, you know, certain factual things, spelling of certain people's names or places um, that you've transcribed it accurately. Not everyone will get back to you about that, but, but lots will. Um, and at that moment, this has not happened to me, but it has happened to, to others. Um, that can be the moment where somebody says, oh, actually, I'm really, I, I wish I hadn't said this or you know, this moment, usually it's when someone's mentioned somebody else. Right. Um, they mentioned somebody else or they've mentioned something they weren't expecting to say and they think, hang on, I know this is going into the archive or that you're going to write about it and I think actually I don't want that to be in the public domain. And there are two things you can do depending on what your chosen archive or repository has a policy on. But, you know, usually you could take that clip out, you could edit that clip um, or mute it or something, um, but you would always, you would always in in an ideal world send the archive both a full copy of the interview that then becomes embargoed for you know fifty hundred years, and the accessible version that has that bit taken out, um, or you, um, you know, in the most extreme cases, if the interviewee says you know actually I don't want this included, um, even if they've signed off. Copyright, you know, I think most oral historians would agree that if someone has then said to you, look, I'm really not comfortable with this going into the archive, you've just got to um, to shelve it, to bin it, because it would be very, I mean, it would be very, you would have every legal right, I think, to use that if they've assigned copyright to you and or the archive. But, you know, if it's, if it remains your project uh, and this some this person volunteered their time and their stories to you and now they want to take them back there is a real ethical question there about you know whose uh, you know whose um stories these are who has final authority over them and at that stage i, I think it probably still is the interviewee and most of the time now again in best practice your consent form would make very clear that the oral history interviewee is free to um to um, what's the, the phrasing is usually to like withdraw from the process without any explanation, uh, and that will be fine um, until it's been archived. Because at that point, you know, there are other kind of legal things that step in. So that is is very rare. But the the point about editing, uh, you know, is that in in, in a few rare cases, um, you might be editing a few clips out if someone's uncomfortable with with a, a certain section. But um, it hasn't been the case I've had to do that yet. And so after that, it, it enters the archive or enters the public sphere or the project or however you're going to present it. And in terms of the education system, in terms of learning and teaching, what role do you think that oral history plays in that sphere as well? Because it's, it's very straightforward, I think, to, to see the value that it has in the archive as a historical source. And like you said, it is the conscious creation of a historical source but in terms of education and teaching 
what role do you see oral history playing? Mm. Well, the first thing to be said is that uh, it does not always make it to the archive. Yeah. Uh, you know, far too often, for a number of reasons, funding, uh, lack of resource in certain repositories, often these interviews will remain on a hard drive or in a box under someone's bed. You know, wow. I'm sure there are there are tons of interviews that have not made it to the archive, and not for lack of trying. Um, but you know, usually they, that would be that would be where they would end up. Um, so there are a number of ways that oral history can really play a part, and I suppose like the education system and and in a, cultures of learning more widely. And the oral history journal has a very good uh, learning section. Usually, every issue has a has a learning oriented article. Um, and in the most recent issue, there's a there's a really good article by Graham Smith, who I talked about earlier, talking about oral history in higher education. Um, and but I said your question maybe points me towards because I think that's probably slightly more obvious you know the kind of how we can use oral history in in um in teaching and in um our kind of higher education practice you know hiring more oral historians would be a really good idea um but we're seeing more oral history work being done in the academy than we were 10 20 years ago which is very encouraging um but I suppose yeah your question points in maybe towards you know younger learners and and school age learners and there are certainly some projects usually community uh, projects or f projects funded by people like the heritage lottery fund or others who have trained younger people to interview uh, maybe not so much in the education system but that could be one that could be one possible way right that, that oral history practice could start to be um, integrated into certain kind of historical projects at schools and you could I could see it working I'm sure this will have been done somewhere but you know younger interviews going and interviewing you know older people in local uh, residential homes or in local like, community centres um, and certainly at the moment there's a really superb project being run again by Wendy Rickard and a, and a, and a number of others um, uh, about children who grew up with HIV so people who you know they, they're um, born with the virus because of um, uh, for a number of reasons um, but that's being run by Cheva, the Children's HIV Association and they are training the young people themselves to um, to do interviews um, as well as to be interviewed themselves by um, more established oral historians so there's certainly good track record for training much younger people um, to do interviews um, it's a really, I mean, it, as a skill, it's a really useful thing to have. And so building it into, you know, certain kinds of uh, educational programs or training programs, you know, there's real historical merit. You get some more interviews, you get some, you get to have a really different perspective um, elicited from that interview. And actually, we, I think we don't know all as much as we perhaps should about what the age of the interview were does to impact the kind of narrative you get. I suspect quite a lot, actually. Um, and I'm, I've been very interested for a long time about what the impact is across your educational journey. You know, I've, I've found that people are really keen often to, quote unquote, to help you out with your project. And maybe that becomes less the case the further you go um, as an oral historian. You know, 
when it becomes very clear that actually this is your job and you want something from from them. Whereas as a as a younger person who actually this is not of any professional uh, you know immediate professional use to them, I think you get some really different kinds of narratives that would be fascinating. Uh, but it would also be a really useful, employable skill, um, and 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 do a lot of good kind of training related work. So I think it has the scope to play a lot of, um, to play a big part in the education system. But I think it takes, it takes, um, it takes educators and local authorities and a number of other um, actors. It requires them to have the kind of resource and the capacity. Um, to be able to do this kind of really innovative, um, often quite time-consuming work. And at the moment, these people just don't have that time because they've been under constant assault from local government cuts and from overwork. So I'm sure we could see a lot more of it if we if we gave uh, you know teachers and, and people in um, who are making those kind of decisions the resource and the ability to do that because absolutely. it's been done before and it can be done again but right now it's very very difficult yeah absolutely and it's it's fascinating well the final question is a bit more of a light-hearted one however you choose to interpret it um what is one thing that you've learned now that you'd want to tell your younger self as you're getting into history or oral history what's one thing that you'd like to let them know That's with really the beauty of hindsight <laughs> <laughs> um well, given the fact that it, you know, it's a hard, uncertain discipline and like market to be in, um, this is maybe is again why I'm struggling to answer the question because I guess I would like to have the answer to this question of from me in like ten years' time. Yeah, that would be really nice. Uh, so I think I would just say to my younger self to like to keep enjoying. Uh, as weird as it sounds, because I've explained to you that the work is like, is often uh, very serious and very um, sensitive, but it is that there is stuff to be enjoyed there and to enjoy the, the to, to 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 not lose the sense of real privilege that it is to hear from people who've had amazing, shocking, disturbing, invigorating life experiences. To not forget what a privilege that is to hear. Yeah. Um, I suppose at some point it can become part and parcel of the working of your working life and to not forget that would be really useful so I think I would say don't forget that and to keep enjoying your work and um, yeah things of, the, of that nature I That's, think it's very valuable never take anything for granted yes it's, exactly. it's very valuable very valuable well thank you so much for your time thank you for coming on the podcast it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Present History Podcast. If you want to find out more about Dr. George Severs and all his work and everything that he's up to, you can follow him on Twitter at GeorgeSevers10 and you can visit his own website, GeorgeSevers.com. All those links will be in the episode description as well, so never fear. But thank you again for listening to this episode of the Present History Podcast. As always, make sure to follow us on all social medias to keep up to date with everything that we do so you never miss an upcoming episode. And we'll see you next time on the Present History Podcast.